Um, so uh, I have a question about um, you mentioned uh, yesterday about uh, the lack of uh, judgment in the within the yeah or judging uh, your, yourself or others uh, yesterday. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to ask, sort of, I feel like in judgment there has to be like two, it contains sort of two things, I guess. Like, uh, let's say, um, so you do something wrong or I do something wrong, and then I go like, uh, oh, you all always been like that, and you are like that, and you'll always be like that, sort of bad. So that's one way of judging. Or, oh, I'm bad, I will always be bad. But I also, like, if I have an ideal, like the Buddha or a teacher, like, I feel like by almost by definition, by having an ideal, that ideal is also judging me in a sort of, <laughs> like, if to the extent that the Lama Trangshu is my ideal, his presence sort of judges me or burns me or the parts of me that I can see are not, you know, I have my ideal and I'm being judged. Uh, of course, um, so and I feel like this has to be a part of um, like if you can't have this judgment being judged by your ideal, then you can't have an ideal, and then there can't be, be a path. Well, I think we need to differentiate between judgment and discriminating awareness. We can discriminate between what's helpful and what's harmful, for example, in terms of uh, our behavior or somebody else's behavior without necessarily judging it. Judging adds this concept of good and bad. Uh, we are, uh, the judge is someone separate from it and above this looking down on the one that is being judged so there are all sorts of attitudes that are with judgment that are not necessarily present with discriminating awareness. I mean, discriminating awareness is the basis, of course, to discriminate between this and that. So if we have some sort of ideal that uh, we are modeling ourselves after, then, of course, we can discriminate. Are we living up to that ideal or not? Are we striving to try to be like that ideal or not? So that's just very objective discriminating, this and not that. But without the judgment factor of I'm not good enough, I'm no good, I'm never going to succeed, all of that. So these two are quite uh, different, judgment and discriminating awareness or discrimination. Never helpful to be judgmental in that sense. It adds something that's not there. 
which is this whole aspect of good, bad, and a judge separate from it. Yeah. But it is part of our Western culture, of course, of how we look at things. So as we were speaking uh, before about doctrinally based confusion, <laughs> you know, we have this uh, part of our culture, and then we have to examine, is this uh, helpful or not? Does it correspond to reality or not? Well, that's not a very easy question because there are civil laws, for example, that uh, are couched in terms of uh, good and bad, but they don't necessarily have to be. You know, here are certain laws, and either we follow them or we don't follow them. Just because we don't follow them doesn't mean that we're bad. We don't have to add that uh, uh, judgment onto it. Also, what's very important in terms of that is uh, discriminating or differentiating, I should say, between the person and the action. Someone's actions can be unacceptable, very destructive, but uh, that doesn't mean that you know, we reject the person themselves. This is a person they acted under tremendous confusion and disturbance. And so we still have compassion for the person. We may have to lock them up to prevent them from harming anybody else. But uh, I think this is part of your whole legal system here in Norway. It is very civilized to differentiate between the action and the person. Anything else? Yeah. Um, I've been thinking about um, um, the things you said in the first session, and just to see if I got the Can right... Can you hold the microphone a little bit away? It's getting distorted, yeah. and I can't really hear okay. clearly what you're saying. I, <clears throat> I've been thinking uh, about what you taught in the first session today, mm-hmm. and uh, if I understood you correctly, uh, the 12 links can be uh, interpreted as two sets of causes and effects. Mm-hmm. The first one uh, can be interpreted as the causes giving uh, rise to uh, 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 the, the first two and a half, <laughs> the mm-hmm. cause, past life causes giving rise to uh, uh, this life in the, if, in the next uh, four and a half. Mm-hmm. And then uh, the n- next group again uh, uh, as causes uh, to 
um, in the death process that gives rise to the next right. life again. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, uh, I, I don't know really um, how I should pose this question, but I'm a bit um, confused about uh, this. Uh, um, how do these... Um, uh, teachings uh, really explain anything about the the interface between the um, mental and the physical in any way or or is that beside the point that's one question <laughs> and uh, and sort of my my next uh, if I may have two questions in one, mm-hmm. uh, do the teachings say anything about how to break the circle? Or right. Can these uh, these teachings be used to? Right. Yeah. Uh, do the teachings on twelve links uh, explain how to break the cycle? Yes, definitely. That's what we will be uh, speaking about in the following uh, sessions. But uh, in terms of the interface between the mental and the physical, I'm not quite sure on which level. Uh, you really are asking about that, but uh, certainly it when we talk about a mechanism that is explaining rebirth that uh, if rebirth the whole thing is being driven by our unawareness of how we exist and how everybody else exists that 's the mental side, and then the links which uh, describe the uh, evolution of the fetus. Or the development of the fetus is certainly describing how the physical side uh, works, uh, how uh, a rebirth with a body, with a physical side, is uh, generated from uh, or driven by the uh, mental state, by our confusion. Now, that's one level of answering your question. However, I don't know that that really is the level that uh, uh, you're concerned about uh, in terms of the generation of rebirth or just in general, the relation between consciousness and the brain, for example. These sort of things. I mean, what, what actually is of interest to you? Uh, well, uh, I can't, cannot state it uh, clearly because... Uh, but. Uh, um, what you said first is actually onto it in a way, and uh, I think my question has to do with what is primary. <laughs> with uh, the what? What is the uh, that? Um, uh, well, uh, uh, what is comes first? The the it has to do also with the interface between the brain and the and the, uh, and the psyche, mind. yeah, and the mind, but. Uh, I, I think in our society, where we are so materialistic in our way of thinking, it uh, for me it comes. Uh, I, I sort of I'm seeking an explanation of what comes first. In a way, uh, is the <laughs> is the body a result of the mind? <laughs> or, I see. What yeah, comes uh, first? Yeah. Well, well, and how does this actually work? <laughs> right. What yeah. comes first is. Uh, uh, a question that arises if there's a beginning. But because there's no beginning, there's no what comes first. 
in order to have that unawareness, you need to have a physical basis of a body, some sort of form. And the combination of that is going to generate more. So without a body, you don't have uh, some physical basis. You don't have uh, mind, mental activity, even if that physical basis is the subtlest of subtle wind or energy, still some physical basis. And uh, you're not going to have the perpetuation of that without uh, uh, something which is driving it, some sort of mental state from a samsaric point of view, either ignorance or from a Buddhist point of view, compassion. Something is going to... uh, drive it. I think perhaps the confusion here is in terms of causality. Causality is very, very complex and it's uh, analyzed in a very sophisticated way in the Buddhist teachings. In some systems there are six different types of causes In other systems, there's 20 different types of causes. So when we speak about the the, uh, body, it's not as though your mind creates the body. The body is arising from its own uh, substantial causes, sperm and an egg. Your mind doesn't produce the sperm and egg. So we're not speaking about uh, uh, ignorance or unawareness creating the substance of the body. But uh, we're speaking about an obtainer. You have this word again, obtainer. Uh, There's a certain type of obtainer cause. That from which you obtain the result And so, because of our uh, ignorance or unawareness, then there's the obtaining of that result of of a rebirth. But it doesn't create the substance of that rebirth. So, sort of like that. It's a little bit more complicated. And there has to be, of course, the parents, and there has to be the conditions that will support the development of the fetus, external conditions. There are many, many things. The food that the mother eats, the air that she breathes, all these things are necessary. So many different aspects of causality, causes and conditions. When we speak of dependent arising, things arise dependently on a huge network of causes and conditions, not just one cause produces one effect, and that's it. So everything is sort of interdependent. Our being in this room is dependent on who 
cut down the trees to make the wood for the floor. You know, there are many, many causes for being in this room. Besides the car or the bus that brought us here. And our parents giving birth to us. So, I mean, you can look at causality from so many different angles. Okay. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Think more about it. Uh, I wonder about this um, issue about personality. personality. Do you hear me? Yes. yes? Personality, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that reborn? Is uh, that a reward? No. Is it reborn? Born. Reborn. Reborn. Yeah, is that something that... Yeah. I mean, a child uh, getting born, is, is there something... Uh, in there from the beginning or is personality only something which uh, you create after being born but okay personality uh, 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 that's very y- interesting yes personality yes i understand personality that, yeah i hope i understand <laughs> <laughs> what you mean by personality what i th- personality is a something very complex. There are many, many factors in that. So it has to do with uh, all our various emotions and talents and abilities and interests and these sort of things. So each of them are mental factors. The amount of anger we have, the amount of compassion we have, the amount of patience we have, all of these sort of things go into how open we are to others, how shy we are, how friendly we are. All of these are different mental factors. Either they are one mental factor or they're a combination of a few mental factors that we describe like friendliness. Uh, it's a combination of a few things. When we speak about tendencies, these are not just, or seeds is a literal word, but it's not something physical. Uh, There are tendencies uh, for all of the mental factors, not just tendencies in terms of karmic tendencies, like tendencies to compulsively act in a certain way. So tendency or potential, however you want to translate it, uh, so that each of these mental factors spans a whole spectrum. So if we speak in terms of intelligence, it's from you know very, very little intelligence like a fly has, or you know, an Einstein. And depending on, and that would be the same thing for like patience or anger or love or any of these mental factors, concentration, etc. So we have built up 
through experience in, in past lifetimes, a certain potential or a certain tendency for each of these mental factors. So each of them has a certain value in a sense or potential. Now it starts to become very complex because uh, you need various conditions for something to become manifest. So you could build up, let's say, a great potential uh, for intelligence. However, other karmic factors have uh, thrown you to having a rebirth as a dog or a fly. So you could be a very intelligent dog or intelligent fly, but the physical basis wouldn't support the level of intelligence that you could have as a human. So all of these things will interact. So the personality is a combination, to put it in simple terms, of all these different factors. Now, they're going to be uh, also influenced moment to moment during your lifetime by circumstances. So depending on your parents' behavior, depending on your uh, schoolmates, depending on if a war breaks out, uh, all sorts of things are going to change uh, the circumstances that will then trigger different levels of each of these mental factors, how other people around you are behaving, etc. The media. So personality is something which is very, very fluid. It's not something which is fixed. So all the potentials that you have as a newborn are going to be affected by what type of life form you are born as and potentials from you know the past. But then all of those are going to likewise be affected by what happens to you during your life, who you encounter, and so on. And that's a very big insight to have that we can change our personality from being a very uh, short-tempered, angersome person to being more patient and more loving. We can change that. But when we throw out this net of me and mine, then we identify with our personality at this moment, which we might exaggerate, of course, and have a misconception of what it is. And then that's me. This is the way that I am. Everybody has to live with it. And then we identify with it. And this is a cause of great trouble. Don't identify with anything. It's changing all the time because it arises dependently on a million different factors. Don't get stuck holding on to something that, you know, uh, if you think in terms of time, what is the present? Well, as soon as you identify the present, it's already past, it's gone. 
So how can you hold on to it and identify with it? Next. That, uh, no, now I'm on. Yes, I was uh, just curious about your thoughts of this net, throwing out this net of I, me, mind. In our Western society, for instance, we have a strong identification as, you know, the individual self. And then you hear about other more collective cultures that have more mm -hmm. community feeling and... You, You can hear stories about native Indians who their name isn't uh, it's more like a um, verb than you know describing an action and I was just wondering if you could uh, reflect a little bit on that our situation today in in our time and in this very strong individual identification and how that if that makes it uh, <laughs> harder to break the karma or uh, that it's mm. in uh, and um, uh, seeing it more in cultures where it's it doesn't seem to be such strong individuality mm. could you say something about that yeah individuality that's uh, uh conventionally we are individuals if uh I'm hungry, it doesn't mean that you're hungry. So each of us are individuals. You know, this finger is not that finger. But uh, when we ident think of ourselves as, you know, in an incorrect way, when we conceive that we exist as some... Um, I was using the word solid, but, you know, something that doesn't change, that is independent of influences, not affected by anything. Me first, I can go it alone. This type of thing, where we make a me sort of, if you can picture this, encapsulated in plastic, like a ping pong ball. Here's me, and here's you, and here are all these other ping-pong balls, and we just bounce off each other. We don't really communicate, in a sense. So that type of uh, individual, individuality, where we identify with something, let's say our profession, I'm a doctor, I'm a mother, I'm a father, whatever we identify with. And then, you know, everybody else is out there and against me in a sense. This is a problem. Now, you could extend that in a non-Western society to identifying with a family or your clan or your caste or your country. It's no different. It's just uh, making the base a little bit wider. 
So it's not seeing the interconnectedness and interdependence of everything. And the interdependence of everything isn't in terms of, you know, two balls connected with a stick. And everything is connected that way. It's not like that. There's no solid barriers. We still are individuals, however. But it's very interesting that uh, we are very much uh, maybe influenced by or our way of thinking is reflected by the heroes and heroines that we have in our culture. Going back to uh, ancient Greek culture, there's the individual who asserts their individuality fighting against the gods. And these are our heroes and role models that we have to rebel against the authority of the parents, for example, or whatever, in order to assert our individuality. Now, it can be done in a healthy way, like you speak of in psychology, the individuation that the child needs to somehow uh, develop a sense of conventional self that's not just a part of the parent. So there's that aspect, but there's also I have to rebel and uh, you know, I have to fight against authority. I have to do something unique. We make ourselves special. Always has to come up with something new. You have to have a new model car each year. This is part of our culture, and it produces a lot of problems. Why do you need a new model every year? Why do you need to change fashion every year, the length of your dress or the length of whatever, so that people will make money? But it's very artificial, isn't it? But we shouldn't think that non-Western societies where emphasis is uh, larger than just the one individual, that they are free of problems. Not at all. Just a larger basis. Is it working? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Um, I have a question about consciousness. Um, this morning uh, you were talking as one of the 12, and uh, I may be wrong, but if I understand it correctly, the no beginning and the no end, the continuity is the consciousness. And it is the consciousness that propels us into the next life. Mm-hmm. If that is correct, um, it's a carrier. Yeah, to carry. But um, how should we uh, see this? You said in the beginning, after the, then the consciousness is undifferentiated, 
But there is another uh, model which says we have eight consciousnesses. Um, and one of them, eight, is Alaya. So what is actually being transferred? All these consciousnesses and um, is then the karmic imprint in that consciousness, because it has to go somewhere, I thought. <laughs> right. Can you elaborate a bit on this? Yeah. There are many different uh, models that are asserted by the different uh, Buddhist uh, explanations and traditions. Each of them has its own advantages that describe what's happening from one point of view or another point of view. So this has always been the, one of the key issues in Buddhist uh, explanation is what is it that uh, goes on from one lifetime to another? What is it that carries the karmic tendencies or propensities or potentials or whatever you want to call them, the two different types. And in some explanations, you have the uh, mental consciousness. In some, uh, you have uh, um, alia, foundation conscious consciousness. In some, you have the clear light consciousness there are many different explanations. So I don't think that uh, we need to get uh, stuck on which one is you know, more correct. Each has its own use and benefit. The point being that uh, there are grosser levels of consciousness in which it is differentiated into eight or six, or however, you know, whatever number you want to make it. Those are the usual ways of uh, explaining it. And when we die, the grosser levels um, no longer are functioning. trying to think of a simple way to explain this. Well, excuse me, I will get to a sophisticated way of explaining it. <laughs> we have, what is mind? What are we talking about when we're talking about mind? We're talking about mental activity. It's an activity that's going on moment to moment to moment. And that activity is subjective. It's how you experience things. Now, there is a uh, certain, you know, so that's describing this mental activity from a subjective point of view. What's happening is in each moment there is the arising of some sort of mental hologram. It's usually the word that's just translated as aspect, but it's referring to some sort of mental hologram of either a sight or a sound or a smell or a thought or an emotion, you know, all these sort of things. And 
That's what the cognitive engagement is. It's referring to that arising of, you know, when we see various things, from a Western point of view, photons hit the retina, and that's translated into electric impulses and chemical things and goes through all the, the neurons and so on. And what we experience subjectively is basically a hologram, like a mental hologram. Same thing with sound, same thing with uh, thought, etc. And that is what it means to see something or to know something. So that's the mental activity, and it happens without a separate me making it happen or a separate mind called machine that is doing this. Okay, so this mental activity is going on moment to moment to moment to moment to moment, and there is a physical counterpart of it. It can be described physically from the point of view of energy. The energy of it. So the subtlest level, you have this subtlest, so-called clear light mind, and the subtlest energy. Now, when the, and the self is an imputation on that, We'll get into that later on, tomorrow. Um, so it's coming along in this package, in a sense, moment to moment to moment, aware of different things all the time. Now, when that becomes associated with a physical basis, a more gross physical basis, then the energy gets stronger and moves stronger. And then it gets really crazy, you know, because when there are, uh, when it gets stronger, then the level of consciousness gets grosser. So you would have conceptual thoughts, and then eventually you would have sense perception as well. When the physical basis gets grosser and grosser, and the energy goes more and more wildly through this, rather than being more focused like a laser. So, what happens is this mind, I mean, this mental continuum of the subtlest mind, whether you call it Alia, whether you call it Rikba, whether you call it clear light mind, it's not the, the most important thing at this, in this discussion the many variants of what you can call it and how you define it. But uh, that then again, we'll have to get into this imputation business, but it's an imputation on this physical basis. You see, the non-Buddhist things identified that with the self and thought that the self goes into these grosser levels. But it's not a self. It's the, con- the subtlest consciousness and the subtlest energy. Self is an imputation on that. It's not some solid thing on it. So it is on that continuum that, uh, because that goes on, that subtlest level, 
goes on and on and on and on. And what happens is that it becomes a you know, imputation on the grosser matter that develops from the sperm and egg. And as that matter gets more differentiated, as we saw with the links, then more and more aspects, mental factors and so on, that are just potentials in this subtlest level, will be able to function because the energy is moving on a grosser level throughout this matter within the fetus and our body. So as we die, that subtlest level is no longer, a, the matter is no longer able to support that subtlest mind as its basis of imputation. And so when that fails, matter fails, that level of consciousness fails, no longer will operate. And then it progresses. There are either eight stages or ten stages, various descriptions of how the consciousness, that subtlest consciousness, uh, can no longer rely on that physical basis as that physical basis fails to be able to support that subtlest consciousness. And because the energy is going less crazy, then um, that level of consciousness will no longer occur. It just becomes a potential. So when we speak about this subtlest mind, then it has the potentials or the tendencies of not only karma, but as we were saying, of all the different mental factors as well. As well as our positive potential and you know, the so-called two collections networks of positive force and deep awareness. If it's dedicated to enlightenment, it'll contribute to becoming enlightened. So that as well. It's carried along all as imputations. And again, that's a big discussion, so we will leave it separately. What is an imputation? But it's not something solid that's being carried there. And what is a tendency, as we saw? You, have a, you drank coffee yesterday, you drank it in the morning, you drank it before you came here. It's a tendency to drink coffee. There's a tendency to get angry. There's a tendency to be loving. There's a tendency to hug people. There's a tendency to yell at people. A tendency to be patient or not. And it will have a different level of strength. So all of those are imputations on this subtlest level that continues. And the self is an imputation on that. It's not identified with that subtlest mind. That is the fallacy of the non-Buddhist systems. They identify it with the mind or with matter. that it could somehow be separate.
Okay, that's a little bit sophisticated. I hope you could follow that a little bit. But uh, this is why we have all these practices in the very sophisticated levels of Tantra dealing with the energy. The energy is going crazy in the body. The thoughts, the energy is just a physical description of what is a mental state. You can understand that if you think of the example of being nervous. Energy is nervous and our mental state is nervous. So if you can calm down that nervous energy, to use a very basic example, mind will be calmer. So all those practices dealing with the energies and so on are intended to calm down those energies and to get it not running wild through our body and our nervous system. And that will happen naturally when we die, but you don't want to die in order to become enlightened. <laughs> and just because you, you die, and you know, this uh, subtlest level is there, it doesn't mean that you understand anything with it. Subtlest level by itself is, because it has these uh, tendencies of ignorance or unawareness. That's not what we're aiming for. You have to have understanding with that level. Okay? Anyway. Question for me now then. Uh, because uh, I can accept theoretically that there is no beginning and no end. Uh, but then when you talk about uh, this consciousness, is they take a rebirth. You talk about a fly, uh, and, and it could take uh, birth. Apparently, my consciousness was taken uh, root with my parents or in my mother's womb or something. Uh, what your consciousness I what? mean, what determines where the consciousness is taking rebirth? Right. Uh, is it in mother or parent uh, A or B or what? Uh, what the, is this? Because I find it also... The consciousness is taking rebirth. It is taking as its physical basis the sperm and egg. That I understand. From the mother and father. But why is it in parent A and not in B? Why is it in parent A and not in parent B? Again, because of karmic connections. So, there... Karma is very complicated. <laughs> And so, if we have activated a certain type of karmic tendency, it's a cluster of karmic tendencies, it's not just one. There's throwing karma, which is going to affect the life form, and then there's the completing karma, which is a whole cluster of things, which has to do with the circumstances and so on, the parents and so on. So if we have, uh, you know, and karma ripens in many, many different aspects. So to be born in a place where things similarly to what we did to others happens to us, 
then you might be born in a war zone. So that starts to limit the parents. And uh, it's going to, you know, we will be uh, born in a family that might be quite physically abusive and so on. So that limits it, it further. So there needs to be, from the parent's side, a certain cluster of, you know, um, characteristics that are going to fit, in a sense, with the uh, um, potentials that have been activated at that uh, time. And also history has to do with it as well. We're not going to be uh, reborn as a dinosaur when there are no more dinosaurs. So <laughs> that also is, uh, you know, we could be reborn as a dinosaur in some other galaxy, some other planet where there are dinosaurs. May I have one follow-up then? Because uh, that means in families, my experience as a, is that from my own family, and you tend to observe that with your own children, they are also different. Is this a karmic explanation then? Uh, have, uh, yes, it's a karmic explanation. You can have uh, two Id identical twins. I mean, I have a student like that. He ha is... Uh, an identical twin, he has an identical brother. They were raised the same, they were dressed the same as children, everything the same. One is gay, one is straight. How do you explain that? Except that uh, they have a different karmic past. So the parents, I mean, it's very interesting then when you think of it, it's sort of like um, do you know these I don't know if maybe some of you are old enough to know the uh, uh, very, very first computers had these cards, these IBM cards that you punched holes in and so our, you know, the parents have to have you know, the appropriate cards so that our karma will fit into you know, the holes that are there. There has to be some sort of match. And then it's almost like magnetism that uh, draws one together. And that same sort of configuration can be reflected in astrology, for example. It's not that, that the configuration of the planet's causes are personality or whatever, but it can reflect it. Have, you know, we, we need to be born at a certain time that will be fit in with that configuration. All these things are, will affect what karmic potentials get uh, activated at the time of death. Dependent arising means dependent on many, 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 many factors. That's what makes it so complex. And difficult to understand, like the weather depends on so many factors. It's complicated like that.
<laughs> Hello. As you have been teaching for many years, um, I wonder if you have seen any patterns or um, of um, which practices Western need more than Eastern people. Like we have this, uh, uh, like you talked about yesterday, about judging everything and uh, other thing, tendencies that are stronger for modern people or Western people. And um, could you say something about which practices is more important to counterbalance or to... Which passages? W which which uh, practices. 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 Yeah. <laughs> like, which practices are most beneficial? If you have seen any pattern, which one is more... Uh, important for uh, us well for again I I always follow the uh, insights and teachings of uh, my main teacher His Holiness the Dalai Lama and what he says is uh, the most beneficial is analysis we in the West have, uh, who come to the Dharma are not like in a traditional society when we are put into a monastery by our parents when we are eight years old. But uh, we come to the Dharma already quite well educated. And we have a background, many of us, in a rational scientific way of thinking as part of our education. Therefore, the most important and beneficial thing is analysis. What does analysis mean? It means understanding, trying to understand what the teachings are, what they mean, and how it applies to life in terms of how does it help to overcome suffering, my suffering and everybody else's suffering, and trying to put the teachings together. This is something that in our Western way of uh, thinking is uh, quite pronounced. When you look at the five types of deep awareness, the so-called five Buddha wisdoms, one is individualizing and the other is equalizing deep awareness. Tibetans, from my experience with them, have very strong individualizing deep awareness. Ask them something from the debate tradition and they can give all the, de all the details and everything specifically about that topic. Our Western way of training emphasizes equalizing deep awareness. We're always, you know, comparing how does the modernization of China compare with the modernization of Japan? How does Madhyamaka philosophy and uh, Chittimatra, you know, what's the difference? How do you, you compare them? We're always trying to put things together Whereas a traditional t 
traditionally educated Tibetan will give you all the details of Madhyamaka, all the details of Chittamatra, but they won't even understand your question of what's the, the, the difference between them. How do you compare them like that? So this is very helpful for, you know, to use that ability in our analysis to try to understand things, understand each of the things that we are comparing, put it together, put together what I really wanted to emphasize on that is putting together the pieces of the Dharma. I always think of the Dharma as a uh, jigsaw puzzle. We are given many little pieces here and there, and it's through analysis that we put the pieces together that makes use of this equalizing awareness that we have, that we're so good at. How do they fit together? This is where you make the best progress. What His Holiness Dalai Lama always emphasizes. Of course, we need some level of concentration, but you don't need perfect concentration in order to be able to analyze. You can analyze for five minutes, fine. You don't have to be able to sit there for four hours in order to benefit from the analysis. You need some compassion to be able to deal with people, yes. To love all the mosquitoes of the planet, well, that's something else. You don't quite need to go to that level yet. But in order to make progress, that analysis, to understand the teachings, what does it mean on a practical level not just a interesting theory. How does it relate to life? This is the most important thing. And the practices are life. Actually applying it. Um, I think I understand what you say, but could you give a practical example to illustrate? A practical it? example oh. would be what we will be discussing in the uh, following sessions, how do we deal with these uh, 12 links? Or a practical example from uh, what we discussed last night, which is uh, to differentiate projection from reality. So analysis. Somebody said, you know, one of our friends said something to us that hurt our feelings. So you analyze, and then I get very upset about that. Then you analyze, why am I getting upset? What I'm doing is identifying that person, throwing out the net of, you know, me or the person identifying them with just what they said. Nothing else. That's who they are, this person who said something that hurt me. And then we get upset and we reject them, we get angry, hold a grudge, all these other things, very disturbing. So you analyze that, uh, well, 
open my mind and look at the entire history of our interaction. Well, the other times, they were really nice. Sometimes, I mean, we're not perfect, so sometimes they say stupid things or they hurt us, but other times they don't. So in that way, we stop identifying them with just one instance, one episode of our interaction and look at the larger thing or the same thing in terms of something doesn't go well in our lives. Look at the larger picture or we think that we're the only one who uh, has this sickness. And you think of the larger picture, well, there's everybody else. Lots of people have a cold (laughs) or whatever. It's not just poor me. So this is practical use of analysis. It's changing our attitude by things by trying to understand more deeply. Am I really the only person who has ever caught a cold? No, this is stupid. So what's so special about my cold? Nothing. And it will pass because it's impermanent. No cold lasts for your entire existence. So we analyze my exaggeration, my projection. Is that actual reality or not? This is the most helpful. Not just sitting there. and You you need to calm down. So sitting there and focusing on the breath or whatever helps you to calm down. But that's only the, the preliminary it's preparation to be able to analyze. Also, I should point out, because a lot of people are, you know, you ask, what is the main practice, shamatha, vipassana, these sort of things? what the difference is between the two, what it actually is talking about. Shamatha and Vipassana, where we're talking about concentration with no mental wandering, dullness, or flightiness of mind, etc. It is not, that's only part of it. Only part of it. Because what we want to focus on is not just looking at an object, even if that's our breath or the nature of the mind or you know, the mind or whatever. It is with some understanding. So there are two mental factors. One is called gross detection and the other is subtle discernment. Those are rather fancy words. What does it mean? If you are watching a football game, shamatha level of concentration on it would be you're just watching the whole field with all the players. So you have a general focus, gross detection of what is going on, the activity on the field. That level of concentration With that 
level of perception, of understanding of what's going on. That's shamatha. Vipassana would be, in addition to that, being able to have very clearly, simultaneously, the movement of every player on the field. And to be aware of all those tiny little details of what each person is doing simultaneously. That's the difference. So, Asanga, great Indian master, gives a whole long list of objects to focus on with shamatha and vipassana. So, in terms of the aggregates, wonderful object to have develop shamatha and vipassana on. Focus in what's happening now in each moment. Gross detection. I mean, of course, no dullness, no mental wandering, etc. But uh, focus in each moment, gross detection, that there are all these mental factors and they're changing all the time. And it's made up of all these different parts that are changing. So I'm aware of that. That is how I focus on the aggregates. There has to be a way of understanding of the object. It's part of the shamatha. The pashana, once you know, you've gotten that gross level of there's all these mental factors and they're all changing all the time, then the pashana would be to be aware of each individual one and what's going on with each individual one simultaneously. It's very difficult. That's the pashana. And we give the name of the result to the cause. We call the result the state of shamatha. We say we're doing shamatha practice. Well, basically, we're doing the practices to attain shamatha or to attain state of vipassana. So if we are doing shamatha type of practice, it's very important that you do it with some understanding of what there has to be an understanding of the object. And we are focusing on that object with an understanding. Now you can get very sophisticated. Is it conceptual? Is it non-conceptual? Etc. That's you know, another factor. Don't worry about that. But some understanding. What it is. Okay. Understanding that, let's say, the aggregates, that they're changing all the time and that what I'm experiencing is made up of a type of consciousness. I'm sitting here and I'm feeling the temperature of the room and I'm seeing the floor in front of me and there's an object and there are all these mental factors of attention, concentration, maybe boredom, uh, maybe you know, not very happy or maybe I'm very happy. And all these things are changing all the time, and it's made up of all these different factors, and they're all changing at a different rate. That's the understanding. And it's all impermanent. But just the general understanding of that, not the specifics of each individual factor that's changing, that's Vipassana. Exceptionally perceptive state of mind. It's not only dealing with emptiness or voidness. 
much more broad than that. Okay? So, I think that's the end of our question session. But uh, with the uh, next sessions, I'll try to leave time at the end for more questions as we go along. Okay? So, have a break and then we continue.